16 and 17. Actually, this was my first memory verse when I was little. Uh, don't ask me to. I'm going to read it because I'm tired. Um, so Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep, me, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of that of great tra transgression. The second one is two Timothy, and it's verses six, uh, chapter four, verses sixteen and seventeen. At my defense, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Huh? Oh, chapter 3, sorry. <laughs> I'll read this one then. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That one seems to relate better. <laughs> Thanks, Rochelle. That's right. Thank Rochelle, everybody. I'm sure we can do something with that first reading. <laughs> Good evening. Got a present for you. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. I've been away for a week and a half. I've been down south helping my daughter with her first child, whose name is Marnie. Um, <clears throat> Marnie just with an eye. And it was uh, like about eight, nine, ten days or something, I can't remember, but incredibly taxing and tiring. You forget what it's like to be a brand new parent. For those who are new parents, I'm praying more for you guys. I raised it on my agenda a little bit. For those who are expecting... I'm praying for you guys too, yeah, because I know what you're heading into. <clears throat> um, have you got it, Josh? Where is, where is he? I want to show you a picture of her. Anyway, um, we had a great week. We had a couple of... <clears throat> That's upside down. Oh, well, it is New South Wales, so I guess that makes sense. Isn't she gorgeous? That's a typical position, asleep, usually. <clears throat> but we had about 24 hours at one stage of uh, her not sleeping, of just like catnapping. She'd sleep for 15 minutes, then she'd wake up for about two hours. <clears throat> and it turned out that I was one of the causes of the problem, that I had fed her the night before with a bottle, and 
I'd forgotten. I'd, you feed them with a bottle, but you don't give them the whole lot, like 50 mils. You don't give them the whole lot. You give them a little bit, and then you take it off them after a minute or two, and then you burp them, and then give them a bit more, and so on. Do that. And I forgot to do that, so I just held the bottle there until she drank the whole lot. So she drank the whole lot, and plus some wind and whatever else goes with that. And uh, so then she had this incredible pain in the tummy, which she couldn't get out, which eventually came out. She doesn't burp a lot, so it came out the other way. <clears throat> she farts a lot. <laughs> She's like a grandmother, let me just... <laughs> Don't say I said that, but it's not true either. But anyway, I thought it was funny. <clears throat> anyway, it was just a great privilege. I never got to do that with my other two granddaughters, Eleanor and Violet. Uh, Rhonda did, but I didn't. And really because of Kate's situation, you know, she was home by herself, nobody else could be there, and so it was really, I had to go, and it was a great privilege to be there. I was chief cook, bottle wash, taxi, cleaner, do all that stuff, and, and loved it. But I tell you what, ladies, you guys are champions, you young mums. It's unbelievable, that it's relentless. You clean something, and then 30 minutes later, it's dirty again. It's just unending. Anyway. So, great respect for young mums and uh, really pleased with what God has gifted uh, our family with. And Rhonda's down there now and she'll be there till next Sunday and she's having a great time. And Rhonda is, of course, Rhonda's an outstanding mum. She's just a natural mum. Uh, she's gifted in just being that. She's got such a nice, placid, passive, calm personality that that just translates to the kids and when she's looking after them. So, Marnie, this week, <coughs> has slept through four nights. Yeah, that's the influence of Rhonda upon kids. So, <clears throat> Fiona, I want you to know, you need help, just give Rhonda a call. I'm sure she'll get that whatever child you have to just sleep through. Anybody have any problems with any of their young kids? Call Rhonda. It's one of her gifts. I'm sure she's available. <laughs> what was that? What was that? Help me, Yeah, what's the next line, you clowns? Help me get her out of my heart. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Anyway, hey, it's good to be together. We're in a series where we are talking about blockers to the Christian faith, of obstacles that uh, folks might have that prevents them from coming into a saving relationship with Jesus. And there's lots of issues. Tonight we're going to look at the whole issue of the Bible that some people uh, reject it, some people mock it, some people are sceptical about it, some people have lots of questions about it. You may too, but you may have also encountered, and I trust that you have, people who are exactly like that. They probably haven't read the Bible, but nonetheless, they're in the process, they reject the Bible um, for whatever reasons that they have. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. At the end of this, um, Charlie's here tonight, Pastor David's here tonight, Pastor Brendan's here tonight, we have four pastors here tonight, so I thought it'd be a great opportunity for us. If you've got a question, you could ask that at the end. In fact, you could send it to our mobiles. Do you have our mobiles? If you have your mobile, if you have our mobiles, then you can send it to one of us, and uh, then at the end, either Charlie or Brendan or David will answer that question for you. It's not fair to them because they have no notice of that, I just sprung that on them. Um, but if you do have some questions, like we did this morning, a couple of people came and chatted to me about spiritual gifts, and it would have been good, actually, to answer those more publicly. They were good questions. And so if you've got a question, you might want to think about that. Um, and if you don't want to do that uh, uh, publicly, you might want to do that privately, you know, just in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, then by, by all means do that as well. How about we pray, 
and then we shall jump in. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for the great privilege it is for us to be able to gather together as your people, to gather freely in this country, to be able to learn together, to encourage, to worship like we have tonight, to be able to sing fantastic songs. And thank you for the worship team tonight and the great job that they've done. And we ask now, Lord, that you would be pleased to both speak to us, but direct us in our thinking and help us to think correctly in order that we might align our lives with your purposes and your will. Make us wiser than what we are. Make us gentler than what we are. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. And we ask it in his name. And everybody said, Amen. <clears throat> um, if you went to the doctor's or some waiting room or some situation where you were sitting beside somebody else and a stranger came in and sat next to you, what would you know about them? Absolutely nothing. They're a stranger. And it wouldn't be until they, you either engage with them in conversation or you ask them a question and they answered it, that you would begin to learn maybe a little bit about them. So too with God. Unless God reveals things about himself, then he remains to us invisible, unknown and distant and off. But the wonderful thing is that God has revealed himself, not just in creation, but God has specifically revealed himself in, and it's recorded for us, in the Bible. That's ultimately what the Bible is. It's a record of the revelation of God telling us what he is like, of what his plan is, of what his values are, of what he wants to do. And of course, ultimately, the Bible story comes to a person of Jesus. It's God himself coming into our world. And it's God revealing to us what he is like the Bible. So tonight we're going to address some questions. Where did the Bible come from? What is it? How can we trust it? Do we need it? Is it relevant still in our lives? It's a pretty old book. <clears throat> can it help us today? So those are the sorts of questions we're going to have a look at now. Hope you can read this. The Bible, firstly, by way of introduction, it's a big book. It's got 66 books. It's in fact a library of books, 66 different books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 1,189 chapters. Big book. But it's amazing. Do you know you can read it in less than 80 hours? About 78 hours, normal reading speed. So it's a big book. It's a massive book. It comes from um, not just 66 books. It comes from 40 different authors. Those authors uh, lived over 1,500 years approximately, and they come from different, three different continents that are very close to each other. Um, so in the midst of all of this variety, it nonetheless tells one story. It's a unique book. Um, <clears throat> it's different to every other religious text. It's different to all other books that we have. It's a remarkable book because it's God's book, of course. And it tells this one storyline. Even though it's written over 1,500 years and it's written by different people at different times with different parts of it, it tells one story because there's one author behind it, God. It's God speaking through Moses, writes the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's God speaking through Joshua or Samuel, or all the way through the Old Testament prophets. It's God speaking through the person of Jesus, and then it's through the apostles. And all of that's written down for us and put together into one book. And this one storyline is really about God the Creator who made us and made us in his image to be special relationship with him, but we rebelled against him. We, the Bible calls that sin. 
which led to a separation between us and God. But that wasn't, God wasn't happy about that because he made us to be in relationship with him. So God sets about to re-establish, to restore this relationship with us rebel people. And then it's uh, God picks a nation, Israel, that's the Old Testament, and out of that nation, Israel, will come one promised person, Jesus, the Messiah. Prophesied all the way through the Old Testament, every book. And then he comes, he's born, we celebrate his birth at Christmas. And then the rest of the New Testament is about talking about Jesus' life and death, his resurrection, and the establishment of the church and how we should live as followers of him. The one storyline is about God, we rebelled, God has saved us and restored us, and what God's going to do in the future. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. I guess there are about five things I want to say tonight very quickly. Number one, the Bible is reliable. It's trustworthy. It's reliable and trustworthy because ultimately it's God's word. It's historically correct. Whenever the Bible has been examined and is able to be examined historically, it has always proven to be accurate. Over the course of time, people have read the Bible. Back in the 1800s, the Bible spoke about this place, this city called Babylon. There was no historical evidence, there's no archaeological evidence, there's no reference to it in the historical documents. And scholars back in the 1800s were saying, there is no such place as Babylon. This must be a myth. This must be a legendary story. Until one guy who took the Bible very seriously, studied all the references to it and went on an expedition. And lo and behold, he discovers the foundations of the city of Babylon. And everybody's blown away. Wow. What the Bible said actually happened. It's repeated again with the, the empire of the Hittites. If you read through the Old Testament, you read about the Hittite nation and they were there when Joshua invaded the land. And again, no historical reference, no archaeological evidence for them ever existing. But back in 1906, there was this massive, they were building and constructing something and they unearthed something and they unearthed this massive library. And it was a record of the Hittite kingdom. And again, something the Bible just referenced and spoke about actually is historically accurate and true. It's repeated again and again and again. There are hundreds of examples of this. It's historically accurate. Pontius Pilate, 1970, found his name engraved on a stone, which lends credibility to his historical viability. 1990, Caiaphas, the high priest, the pool of Siloam, I don't know what year it was, but that's like about two decades ago. They unearthed this pool. It's John chapter 5, the pool of Siloam, and everybody doubted the reality of it. <clears throat> and in fact... For well over 100 years now, people have known that Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, refers to the Roman Empire and Roman um, dignitaries and officials, and he uses particular titles and various titles for ones in various cities, which are different to the titles he uses in another city. And historians and scholars were saying this is not right, that they should have had a consistent name. But then, lo and behold, through historical research, we have discovered that exactly the terms that Luke has used are exactly the right terms in that city at that point in time. Luke is now one of the credible ancient historians that what he writes can be fully trusted. It's amazing. The Bible is historically accurate. Does that mean there are things in the Bible that we have proven at all historical? No. But what do you think the chances are if the Bible mentions it, that it really is there and that if eventually it may be discovered, but if it isn't, 
then it's a matter of trusting this credibility of this book. It's historically accurate. Secondly, <clears throat> it's reliable and trustworthy because of the prophecies the Bible gives. It talks about cities. It talks about nations. It talks hundreds of times about the coming Messiah. And you guys know this. You've heard these sorts of things before. Of <clears throat> Daniel particularly talks about the city of Babylon will be overrun in one particular night. It'll be succeeded by this Greek empire and that'll be succeeded by another empire and that'll be succeeded by the Roman empire. It all comes to pass. Secular historians are so shocked by the accuracy of what Daniel wrote that they argue that he wrote it after the event, that he wrote it like 200 BC, when it was really 600 BC. He wrote it 200 BC because he has specific prophecies being fulfilled. It's too accurate, they said. <clears throat> Not for the God who knows all things and knows the future. There are over 300 prophecies of the Lord Jesus coming into the world. Not all of those have been fulfilled because many of those refer to his second coming. But the ones that refer to his first coming have been fulfilled to the very letter, precisely. The place he would be born, the way he would die. Um, the amount of coins that would be paid for him to be rejected, the fact he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would be killed with criminals. All of those things come together. The Bible is trustworthy and reliable. There's a guy by the name of Victor Hugo. <laughs> he wrote a famous novel. It was uh, Les Miserables. <laughs> Les Miserables. He was a skeptic. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe the Bible was true. He, in fact, made a statement and said that the Bible in his lifetime would perish, that it would pass away and it would go into oblivion and would never be referred to again. Victor Hugo died and the Bible Society took over his house where Bibles are now produced. <laughs> Do you think God was listening? Do you think God's got a sense of humour? The Bible is reliable. It's relevant. The Bible is relevant for us today because it's God who was speaking to us. Um, there is no change in God, and in fact, there's no change in us. We're the same as the ancient Babylon, Babylonians. We're the same as the ancient Israelites. We're the same as the ancient Romans. We're all sinful. We're all tarred and tainted with the same brokenness and the same attitude towards God. And so because there is no change in the human heart in every culture and in every generation, therefore what God said a long time ago is still relevant to those sorts of people today. The Bible talks about the only cure for our salvation being in the person of the Lord Jesus. So where did the Bible come from? Well, there are two parts to this answer. It came from God. The Bible is God's word. It's God speaking. It's God is the source, the origin. He is the author, if you like. Though he didn't pick up a pen and write it. Though there are two bits in the Bible where God does write something. One is in Daniel chapter 5 where there's a finger that writes on the wall. <clears throat> there was another thing that God wrote. What was that? Ten Commandments. God actually wrote those with his finger. And I went looking for the reference. I couldn't find it. I think it's in Deuteronomy 5, but I'm not overly confident. Apart from that, God didn't actually physically write things down. God used human authors to write it down the bible says in 2, 2 timothy 3 6 3 16 that rochelle read to us that all scripture is god breathed 
We need air in our lungs to come through our vocal cords to speak or to sing. So too, when the Bible says that Scripture is God breathed, it's God breathing out His Word. It's God speaking. God speaking through people. This is remarkable. God didn't write it, but God had it written through the influence of His influence on certain people, on these 40 authors. 2 Peter 1.21 speaks about how the prophets spoke as God's Spirit carried them along. Something was going on for these guys, that God gave them his message, his word, and they wrote it down. Come to the details in a minute as I understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says that, um, Paul says, we teach these things not in words of human wisdom, but in words taught by the Holy Spirit. Well, how did God do it? Well, this is my best guess. This is how I've put it together in my mind. And so this may not be, you know, 100% accurate, but, gee, I think it's pretty close. God picked the author, Moses or Paul or David, Samuel, whoever. God picked the prophets. God picked, the, picked those particular people because of their life experience and because of their intelligence and because of the vocabulary that they had already in their mind. And then God spoke his word to them, influenced them to use the words, the vocabulary that they had in their own mind to write the words down. And the result was that what they wrote is what God wanted written. It's an amazing consistency through the whole scripture. There's no contradictions between God is like this to God is like that over here. It's, he's always consistently revealed. There is this amazing consistency. Not that there's without some issues, as we'll come to in a minute. So how do you account for that? Well, I account for that by saying God is the one who breathed out. God is the one who worked through people. How good is God? How clever. God wrote the Old Testament in Hebrew. And he used the Jewish people who were very pedantic. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. And then God wrote the New Testament in the Greek language. And he used that through the Greek writers... Um, in the Greek language, and that became very prolific. We have like 20,000 copies of manuscripts, 5,000 Greek manuscripts and about 15,000 other ones, and the amount, it just keeps adding up every year, more and more, so that we can be very confident that we know what was written when it was written the very first time. The amount of evidence and resources and data we have is just, it's embarrassingly rich compared to all other historical documents. God chose the Jewish people because they were quite fastidious and pedantic. Back in the 1940s, early 1950s, there was a discovery called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may have heard of it. Shepherd boy is out with some sheep or goats and he throw, he's throwing rocks, he's bored. And he throws these rocks, one rock into a cave and he hears this thing go, smashes something. And he goes inside and he finds these jars and in the jars are these scrolls. And there's lots of scrolls. And it turns out that these are actually copies from a place called Qumran, a community, that had all different sorts of things, including copies of Old Testament books, the scriptures. F.F. F. Bruce tells this story, and so I'm quoting him. They took one chapter and compared the Qumran manuscript, which was dated to about, say, oh, 100 AD, something like that, early. 
compared that to the Masoretic text, sorry, but to the Hebrew text, the latest one we had, which was about 1100 AD. So there's about a thousand years difference between the copy we had then and the one that this boy found in the cave. Does that make sense? <clears throat> they compared them. In one particular chapter in Isaiah 53, there were something like, I'll get the number, the numbers are something like this. Um, I haven't got it memorized fully accurately. There were 13 differences in that chapter between what was written a thousand years earlier and how it was copied fastidiously through the centuries. The Jews were pedantic. They would, if I was a scribe and I was copying out the book of Genesis, then when I wrote Genesis chapter 1, then I would stop and I would count the number of letter A's. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 26. And I would check. There have to be 26 letter A's in Genesis chapter 1. Letter B's, 1, 2, 3. And I would count the letters. And if there was one letter wrong, if the number was wrong, rip it up, start again. They were fastidious in the way that they copied manuscripts. God's gift to us. Anyway, 13 differences in the, between these two manuscripts, 1,000 years apart. But when you analyse the 13 differences, 10 of those are spelling differences. You know how we spell the word honour, H-O-N-O-U-R? Well, 1,000 years ago, they spelled honour, H-O-N-O-R, for instance. There was spelling difference. That's inconsequential. The other two mistakes were something equally uh, synonymous terms that instead of saying uh, whatever, can't think of any... Um, Instead of saying this, it said that, but it meant the same thing. Does that make sense? And so then it lacked one thing that was different in the whole thing, and that didn't make any difference to the meaning of the text at all. So in a thousand years, we can be very confident that the manuscripts have been copied very accurately. God has provided all of this for us. Where did it come from? It came from God through human authors, but God has been at work overseeing it. And in fact, you may or may not know this. They used to write in the Old Testament, they used to write on scrolls and they used to unroll it. Guess who invented the book? The Codex. Guess where that came from? Answer? Christians. Why did it come from? Because we wanted copies of God's word. We wanted it copied in a form that we could actually pass it on and, and carry it with us when we went founding missions and churches into other nations. Christianity is the cause for books to be written. And we're still writing books today. God's word comes from him, comes through people. Time is going, but because it comes through people and God is working with people, it means that sometimes there are lots of human aspects to the scriptures. It's a human book. It's more than that, it's God's word, but it's God's word through humans. So therefore, it's going to use human language, human pictures. It's going to use hyperbole or exaggeration. It's going to do, use rounded numbers. It's going to use generalization and quotes. But it's going to be accurate in that which it says. It's not a precisely divinely written manual that you can go kaplunk to any section and say, that's what God says. Because the Bible also records what Satan says. It also records what people have said records it accurately but that's not what God is saying but that's recorded for us so that we can hear the story and put it together so we can hear what God is saying to us I hope that makes sense so we need to be aware of that 
It uses observational language. The Bible will talk about the sun rising. It'll talk about the four corners of the earth. It's not making scientific statements. It's using common language, just like we do. We talk about the sun rising and the sun sets, and you know that doesn't happen. You know the sun's not going around the earth, don't you? Yeah. So it uses normal, everyday language. And so we should expect that. We should not criticise it or hold it up for being inaccurate. In fact, the Bible is called God's Word. A person is also called the Word of God, Jesus. Both Jesus and the Bible are both human and divine. Not that we worship the Bible. The Bible is a God speaking to us through his people. It's a gift to us but it's not to be elevated. It is to be submitted to in terms of its authority, but it points to Jesus. It points to the reality of who God is. The Bible is filled with hundreds, perhaps thousands of statements like, thus says the Lord, declares the Lord, God said, and on and on and on. I just was reminded of this this week and it just blew me away. I was so, I was impressed. In Genesis 2.24, you get Moses' comment at the end of Adam and Eve. Um, and Eve is made and, you know, Adam is delighted. Then there is this, the author gives a comment. Moses writes this comment. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife um, and the two will become one. They were both naked and unashamed. That's Moses' comment about this story. That's in Genesis 2.24. When you go to Matthew 19, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says... Have you not read what God said? Therefore a man will leave his father and mother. And he quotes what Moses wrote. And Jesus says that's what God said. It's interesting, isn't it? That as far as Jesus is concerned, whether it is thus says the Lord or whether it's a comment that a biblical author is writing, either way, it's God speaking. It's God's word to us. And the reverse happens in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, you get God speaking to Abraham. I want you to leave your home. I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And when you get over to the New Testament, Galatians 3 and verse 8, it doesn't say God said. It simply says, and the Scripture says. What God said in the Old Testament, it becomes what the Scripture says in the New Testament. What Scripture says in the Old Testament becomes what God said. It's interchangeable. What the Bible says is what God says. It's God's word to us. It's powerful. It's a blessing. It's God's word. So I've said to you it's reliable, it's relevant. So therefore it's reasonable for us to base our life upon the Bible. You've got to base your life upon something. What are you going to base your life on? <clears throat> your own wisdom, your own choices. Many people do. Get it wrong. Some people follow the advice of their parents or relatives or whatever. Other people follow some hero or some philosophy. What are you going to base your life upon? I think it's fully reasonable for us to, uh, to lead people and to choose ourselves to base our lives upon the teaching of God's word, upon the scripture, to base our life upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's reasonable to do so. Um, the Bible is sufficient. It's all we need. God has, in his wisdom... Of course, he's all wise and all knowing. He knows exactly what we need. So he's recorded exactly what we need 
in order for us to know and to be able to make decisions which are going to please him and which will benefit us. The Bible is sufficient for us to direct us in our life. In Luke chapter 16, verse 31, Jesus tells a story. It's a debate whether it's a parable or just simply something Jesus is saying, this is what happened. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Many people just simply say it's a story. But Luke, in Luke 16, never calls it a parable. Interesting. Both die. Lazarus, a believer, goes to be with Abraham, heaven. The rich man dies, and he goes to a place called Hades. And while he's in Hades, he's in great torment. And there's a great gulf between him and Lazarus, and he can't go across to him. But he cries out, and he says, Father Abraham, I'm in agony here in these flames. Can you please send Lazarus and dip his finger in some cold water so that I can just receive some relief from this agony? To which then in the story, he is informed that that's not possible. There's a great gulf between us. And Jesus concludes this reaccounting of this event by simply saying, Abraham saying to him, if you will not believe Moses and the prophets, if you don't believe what the Old Testament says, you will not believe even if somebody were to rise from the dead. The Bible is sufficient. It tells us enough things for us to know how to live, who God is, and what's happening next. God has revealed that to us. He hasn't revealed everything. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children. The secret things. There are things we don't know. God's kept them from us. We don't need to know. We'll probably know when we get to glory. But the things that have been revealed in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Bible, these belong to us and to our children so that we might know how we ought to live. The Bible is sufficient for us. And finally, the Bible helps us today. It helps us to know how to live. The Bible is written for our salvation. John 20 verse 31. The whole Gospel of John. This is written so that you might um, believe in the Lord Je in Jesus and by believing in him have life through his name. The Bible is the only one that tells us about that, the reality of salvation through Jesus. It tells us whoops, <clears throat> how to live. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hid in my heart so that what? I might not sin against you. Or Psalm 109, same Psalm, 100, verse 105. Uh, your word is a, a light unto my path, a lamp for my feet. It shows me where to live, how to go. It directs me. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 and 11, talking about the Old Testament. These have been written so that they would be a warning or an example to you, to us, on how we ought to live. God has given us the Bible. He speaks through the Bible to direct us in how we live. The Bible talks about our relationships, our marriages. It talks about leadership, finances, work, morals, behavior, how to handle conflict. It talks about the reality of who God is and his character. It talks about the church. It talks about spiritual gifts. And it talks about what's next. This life is not the end. There is another life. The Bible very clearly reveals it. And God has given proof of that by raising Jesus from the dead. Well, that's a lot of information for you guys tonight. So, conclusion. The Bible is God's word given to us 
given by him to us that reveals him. We haven't changed in our human nature and so the Bible is still relevant. When we read the Bible, we're in fact reading what God did say a long time ago, thousands of years ago, but it's exactly what God would say today. The same message, the same truth. You're reading what God wants you to know. It's all about a relationship with him. So finally, the Bible is the greatest book because we have God's revelation. It's God revealing himself. It has the greatest subject matter, Jesus. It talks about a greatest need for us as humans, salvation. And it has the greatest influence and has had the greatest influence in people's lives and in nations for thousands of years. Western society has been influenced by and greatly impacted by the scriptures. The Bible is reliable, it is relevant, and it's reasonable, therefore, for us to base our life upon its teaching. It is sufficient and it's helpful. I'm going to pray, and then if you've got a question, then uh, we'll field those, I guess. I can't say the time. Is it 20 to 8? Is that right, or is it 8 o'clock? So we've got 30 seconds to answer questions, all right? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word, the Bible. Uh, it's a wonderful gift, Lord, that you've given to us and that you've watched over it, you've superintended it for millennia in order that we might have it. Help us not to neglect this wonderful gift. Grant to us not just a desire to know it and to read it so that we might know you better and be obedient to you, but Lord, could you enable us to understand it accurately? Could you open our eyes and move in our minds? Help us to be students of your word and practitioners of it, not just hearers, but doers, that our lives might be transformed from it. And can you also then, Lord, help use us in talking with other people who reject the Bible, who mock it or scoff it or don't understand it at all? And I suspect, Lord, that's because, not that they have a problem with the Bible, they've got a problem with you. So we pray that you would use us to make a difference in people's lives, to help them move one step closer to a saving relationship with you. This is your will, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Questions? Any? <clears throat> We're done. If the worship team would like to start coming back, I think that'll be helpful. <clears throat> Nobody? That's okay. Don't be embarrassed or feel pressured by it. You don't have to. I know four pastors who were greatly relieved. Ah, uh, what? Who was the first cannibalism in the Bible? one. I guess that's the first one. Yeah. Where's the next one? Yes, it does. 2 Corinthians 8.1. That's the depth of the theological understanding where we are at right now. Okay, let's stand. Right.